Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Nick Carlisle here, and welcome back to another episode of the Life Enchanted podcast, where I tend to nerd out on all things faith, health, interesting, and optimizing. If you're not already following me on Instagram, at nick.carlisle, that is, go ahead and find me on there, hit that follow button, send me a DM perhaps. I am very active on the gram and would love to connect with you personally. This episode, as always, is brought to you by MyLifeEnchanted.com, which is where you can find all things related to the Life Enchanted movement. I have a free 30-page eating guide on there. I have some links to some of my favorite products. I have some hoodies and some shirts I designed. The Truth Pack is on there as well. So go check all of that out. Thanks again for tuning in. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Dr. Ellen Vora, and you, my friends, are in for a treat. Dr. Vora received a bachelor's degree in English from Yale University. She then went on to Columbia University, where she completed medical school. She is a board-certified psychiatrist. She's an acupuncturist. She's a yoga teacher, and she currently has one of the most in-demand psychiatric medical practices in New York City, where she takes a, quote, functional medicine approach to mental health. She's done wellness work for NBC, Peloton, Etsy, Just Works, One Medical, and a host of other large companies. And on top of that, she's just a super kind, incredibly articulate, and passionate human being. In this conversation, we talk anxiety, depression, supplements, sleep, epigenetics, and a lot more. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ellen Vora. All right, Ellen, I am stoked to talk with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me here. So I'd love to start with a song lyric from Beck that I heard you mention before. And the lyric is from his song titled Lost Cause. And it says, quote, this town is crazy, but nobody cares. Can you explain how this lyric relates to your journey into your professional career? Yeah, that really, it sets the time and place. It takes me back <laughs> to med school where this was, you know, the early aughts. And I, I felt incredibly disenchanted throughout my experience in med school. Um, what really summed it up for me, I remember being on my surgery rotation and I was standing in the OR with the attending surgeon and maybe a resident or a fellow. And we were doing an appendectomy where you remove the appendix when it's inflamed. And I remember I was just pondering and I, I spoke up and I asked, why do you think people get appendicitis? That seemed to me such a logical question. And for me, all I'm ever interested in is the why. It's mm -hmm. just the keep going with the why. Why is this happening? Why is that root cause happening? Why is the thing upstream from that happening? What can we do about this? And um, I was so excited to see what you know, a surgeon with gray hair on his head, what he might have arrived at after contemplating this question uh, over 15 years of doing this specific surgery. Um, but his response to me was, we don't ask why, we just cut. 
(laughs) really felt exactly right (laughs) about the state of how conventional medicine thinks about health and healing. Um, It's basically we don't ask why. We do what we do. We do these interventions. We we say, hey, the problem is inevitable. It's going to happen. But here's what we can do to react to it. We can cut it out. We can do powerful medications, powerful interventions. And there's a time and a place for that. Absolutely. You know, if you're in a car accident, if you have a heart attack, mm-hmm. thank goodness for the heroic measures available to us through conventional Western medicine. Mm-hmm. But so much of the vagaries of how we're out of balance these days, um, Western medicine by its very reactive nature is sort of not the right approach and can often make matters worse. So that Beck lyric, just to circle it back, (laughs) I spent those four slash kind of 10 years of medical training feeling like, is anybody else here interested in preventing all of the human people from getting out of balance in the first place? Or are we content to just accept that everyone is so sick, not ask why this is happening, why so many things are on the uprise? And, and we were just being trained to react to disease. And I was interested in preventing it. Yeah, so good. And I love what you do. I follow a lot of your work and I've listened to a lot of your content and interviews and all that. And it's all phenomenal, hence why I wanted to get you on. So thank you for being here and thank you for what you're doing. Um, and in your practice, you take more of a functional medicine approach to helping people overcome their mental health issues and all that, which I love because... I took a similar approach in overcoming a lot of my personal mental health and physical health um, issues. So um, I'm right there with you. But so can you explain to the listeners what that means, please? A functional medicine approach to mental health? Yeah, sure. At least my interpretation of it. Um, When I think about how to define functional medicine, which is not quite yet a household term, it's basically root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. Mm. So rather than saying, here's a problem, it's heartburn, what do we do? We take an antacid, so there's less acid in the stomach, so that when it's leaking into your esophagus, it doesn't hurt as much. And (laughs) that's that's the Western medicine approach, symptom suppression. Put uh, a sticker over the check engine light so that now no more check engine light. You can't mm-hmm. see it anymore. <laughs> and so functional medicine is basically saying, well, why is there the acidic contents of the stomach leaking into the esophagus? Why is that happening? And what? how can we address it at the root? So that's happening increasingly in the auspices of internal medicine, like with heartburn. Um, but you're not seeing it quite so much with mental health. And a functional medicine approach to mental health is basically saying we're not just accepting that depression, anxiety, bipolar, ADHD, insomnia, schizophrenia is inevitable. Um, It's basically saying there's probably a root cause here. Mm. And it's not denying the genetic basis. There is, of course, a genetic basis for all of this. There's a genetic vulnerability. Mm. But in functional medicine, we say genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And the genes, that's the part we don't completely have control over. Um, Asterisk, we can circle back around to the concept of epigenetics, where we do have some degree of control over how our genes are expressed. But environment is really where I focus. That's the part we do control. It's not the whole picture. It's not an invalidation of the genetic basis. It just is basically opening up to an idea that we're not destined to our mental health issues, that we have some ability to feel empowered and to influence how, whether or not these genetic vulnerabilities 
are made manifest in our lives. Yeah. Talk to us about epigenetics real quick. Just give us a, a very macro overview of what that is, because that's a word that's used commonly in the uh, health and wellness world, especially recently. So just give us a high level picture of that. Yeah. So basically, you know, we all know that we have our genes, we have our DNA, and it kind of feels written in stone. But what it turns out is that there's something, there are a few different things, and other people can explain this with far more granularity than I can. But basically, things like methyl groups can attach to our DNA and and determine whether we're going to express or translate certain parts of our DNA into active proteins. So basically, whether our mm. genes get to have an impact. And those methyl groups, um, they're going to behave in response to things going on in our environment, things like stress, things like nutritional availability. Mm. So, you know, the epigenetic research that is most illustrative is when you see um, if women have access to abundant nutrition when they're pregnant, you know, those offspring might have a different metabolism based uh, compared to a group of pregnant women who we're living through famine. Mm. Um, and then certainly with stress, you'll see there's interesting research around epigenetics in um, the descendants of Holocaust survivors. And what you see is that if you were living through the Holocaust um, when you were pregnant, that is imprinting and impacting the genes of a baby in the womb so that they come out of the womb into a world feeling somewhat prepared for an unsafe environment. And this gets extra trippy and interesting when you think about the fact that when a fetus is a female, um, a little female fetus actually already has her own ovaries with her own eggs that become her offspring many years later. Wow. So a pregnant woman wow. in the Holocaust, what the stress she's experiencing is actually impacting her own grandchildren directly. That's insane and powerful. Yeah. Holy moly. And so yeah. those methyl groups can activate the the different proteins within the DNA throughout your entire life, right? Like that's not something that depletes or you, you become less sensitive to as you grow older. Well, um, let's say as far as I know, yes, but basically that plasticity or that um, the ability for our environment to affect our gene expression continues to be a dynamic process throughout our lives. Mm -hmm. So even though what your grandmother was going through is impacting your DNA, if you're a woman, um, also true is that what you're doing today, did you eat a good breakfast? Did you get enough sleep? Did you meditate this morning? Did you get yes. sunshine? That's impacting your DNA today and tomorrow. And um, and so it's to never lose hope. It's not like you're stuck with whatever your grandparents went through. That's a story for you to continue to tell and honor and let it, you know, sort of feel how that's within you, what mm -hmm. your ancestors went through. And I think that there's really something beautiful about that, but it's also, it doesn't keep you stuck. Totally. Um, you can still change your DNA um, going forward, or at least your DNA expression. Yeah. Fascinating. There's almost a spiritual aspect of all of that. When you really look at it, it's, it's powerful. And, and with kids, I have three kids under five years old. It's as a father, yeah you know, the love that you have for them and how much you want their well-being. Um, yeah, it's a powerful thing to think about. And it, and it puts a lot of responsibility on me as a father to make sure that their environment, their nutrition, their sleep, all of these things are optimized so that their their gene expression is then optimized and 
yeah, it's, it's a lot of pressure, but it's, it's powerful and it's good to know. So thank you. Yeah, it is something spiritual. I agree. And when you hear about people talking about like healing, um, intergenerational trauma, there's something very, um, esoteric and a little intangible about that idea. And then this really is the material, um, reality of that is that what our ancestors went through does have a direct line. Um, but yeah, three under five, that's a big deal. I have one, one five and that's a lot. On yeah. its, own. it's a lot of work. My mom likes to say it's the toughest job you'll ever love. And I couldn't agree more. That's a great expression. Yeah. Yep. So I want to talk to you a little bit about sleep because I know this is a big part of your practice. Um, and I feel like it's really not talked about enough in conventional medicine, especially, but it's becoming more and more on the for- forefront, especially in like the Instagram and podcast world, which is great to see. So talk to us a little bit about why sleep is so important and then how do we go about optimizing it? Mm, yeah, sleep is the best medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really nice. Like it's free and it feels good good and it works and it improves our mood and our creativity and our ability to focus and be patient and kind with ourselves, with others, helps us live longer, gives you better skin and helps your body stay in the sort of optimal state of how it wants to be. Everything functions better. Um, So it's like, what gives? Why aren't we all just getting a dose of this every day? Um, I think that in the past, what I saw this was maybe now, maybe like eight to 10 years ago, I would see people not prioritizing sleep. So there was still an overriding tone of our culture that was, um, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or or like I, you know, that I'm Superman and that's why I only sleep five or six hours a night. And that's Mm -hmm. how I'm optimizing my life. And there has actually been a sea change around that to further um, refer back to Beck because I think that quote was from a song in the album Sea Change. That's a old reference in my life so i'm we'll not 100 yeah. sure we'll go with it <laughs> people <laughs> are fact checking on their phones as we speak like she's wrong. so <laughs> so i'm open to being wrong on that <laughs> so there's been a sea change and now what i see is people are prioritizing sleep but it still eludes them basically and that's almost more defeating because people are like i do my evening ritual and i'm winding down and i'm taking my melatonin and i'm getting in bed and i'm journaling and and i still just toss and turn and don't fall asleep easily. And even when I do fall asleep, I wake up throughout the middle of the night. So what I think we're missing is that there are these, like, I trust the body. The body is generally kind of well-designed and it knows how to sleep. It wants to sleep, but it has certain evolutionary precedents that it can't, it has an evolved past. And basically we are right now really well-designed to sleep well in a proverbial savanna of evolution setting and really poorly designed to sleep well in the modern environment. Mm. What I mean by that is that there are just these subtle aspects of modern life, nothing malicious, nothing terrible, just what it means to live in modern life, like have exposure to a light bulb after sunset that happened to be really destructive to our circadian rhythm. So to get good sleep in modern life requires a little bit of education and being strategic about how to give your body something that more closely approximates the evolutionary conditions. Mm. What do you do with caffeine consumption? How do you look at caffeine consumption as it relates to sleep? Because this is what is a big one for me. And I see a lot of people having coffee after dinner, coffee late in the day, even like past noon. How do you go about looking at caffeine consumption? Yeah, this one, the operative word around caffeine is just that it's individual. 
And so there are, and one simplistic way of looking at the individual factors is whether you're a rapid metabolizer or a slow metabolizer, that's really just one component. But let's say you're a rapid metabolizer. That's the person who can have an espresso at the end of an Italian dinner and, mm-hmm. um, and then go to bed and fall asleep a couple hours later. And that person is practically a different species from, say, me or most of my patients. Mm-hmm. So if you're a slow metabolizer, you're the person who had coffee three days ago and you're still a little jittery. <laughs> and so basically... Um, Uh, when you kind of have to know for yourself, are you sensitive to caffeine? Does it make you feel a little jittery? Do you start interrupting people and thinking you're the most charming person at brunch? Do you act as though you're on cocaine? And then I think, do you you struggle with sleep and anxiety are the biggest questions. And if you do have panic attacks, if you do have anxiety, if you have trouble falling asleep or even staying asleep, it just behooves you to take a look at caffeine. It's not a guarantee that caffeine is a factor, but it's there's some reasonable likelihood. And that's not all or nothing either. It's basically to just open up to the idea that caffeine has a long half-life. So um, it's about five to seven hours. So let's say it's like it's 5.7 or six hours on average. Um, that means that even if you had a cup of coffee at eight or 9 a.m., there's still some caffeine buzzing around your brain at night. But more importantly, if you had a cup of coffee at three in the afternoon, it's effectively like you just had half a cup of coffee at 9 p.m. So if you're someone who struggles with sleep, you wouldn't have a coffee at nine, but we're inadvertently doing that. So you just want to push caffeine a little earlier in the day and even decreasing the overall milligramage of caffeine can be a helpful intervention. So maybe you just go from two cups to one cup and a half calf and that can make a difference. Mm. So for the fast metabolizers, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of those in my life, is it true <laughs> that I know a lot of people that are like, oh, man, I could drink this coffee after like after a Bible study or something. My friends are having coffee and then they're going right to sleep after that. I'm like, dude. But um, if they are able to fall asleep still, isn't it true that perhaps their stages of sleep are affected? Like they're not entering deeper stages and getting the, the rest and restoration that those stages bring? Yes. My my overall take on this is to not be as smug and dogmatic as I sometimes have a tendency to be. I have people in my life who tell me they have a coffee in the evening and it poses no problems for them. They sleep great. They wake up refreshed. They feel great. I don't so believe I've decided, them. <laughs> I've decided to just take their word for it and trust that they are a different species of human being than I am. But if if you are out there listening and you are someone like this, just have the healthy, honest introspection around it. Yeah. And if it's really true, then it's true. That's great. And yeah. enjoy your espresso. I look at it longingly and smell it and, and envy you. But I think that if you're not being completely honest with yourself and actually you're not waking up fully refreshed and able to focus during the day, then it might be worth playing around with caffeine consumption. And I do want to point out caffeine is not inherently bad. It has all of this benefits. It has antioxidants and magnesium. And there's interesting research that I think of as really more correlational than causative, that higher coffee consumption, for example, has benefits around things like dementia, Parkinson's, suicidality even. Mm -hmm. I think that there's more to that story. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not just coffee equals benefit, but I think that it's, if it is working for you, you don't have to second guess yourself. Yeah. I think there's also studies showing 
not causality, um, but correlation between caffeine consumption and a decrease in all-cause mortality as well. Right. Yeah, right. Which is and type deal. two diabetes. I forgot to mention. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think always those things. It's like, well, what's underneath that? They, totally. you know, that the research around people that drink six or more cups of coffee seem to get the most benefit. And I'm like, that person might be genetically different to begin with, mm-hmm. and the thing that's making them. Um, like whatever is going on in their liver is maybe why they have the mortality benefit and not just that they're Mm. drinking so much coffee. Yeah. Interesting. Let's revert back to light really quickly. Mm. How important is light? Because I feel like some people think the blue blocking glasses are just doing too much. And that's like, you know, only for the biohackers and, you know, the psychopaths Mm -hmm. of the world. But how how (laughs) serious is light in regards to melatonin production and our circadian rhythm and and what things should we be doing to to help us? Yeah, so light is the primary cue of our circadian rhythm. There's a few other things at play, like timing of meal and recreation and drop in temperature in the evening. But basically the lion's share of what's telling our brain, specifically the superchiasmatic nucleus of the brain, what time of day it is, and therefore when we should secrete our stress hormone cortisol and when we should secrete melatonin to help us feel sleepy, it's cued by light. And that used to be a foolproof system because it was light during the day and it was by definition dark at night. So Mm -hmm. that just worked. And then we invented the light bulb, which no hard feelings. Like I'm all in favor of electricity. It's been pretty (laughs) awesome, but it does really jack up our circadian rhythm. And so I think that the psychopathic blue blocking glasses (laughs) are really one of the best. It's my favorite kind of health intervention. Mm. I like things that are inexpensive, non-invasive, and they just work. And the only thing that beats the blue blocking glasses is the squatty potty. That's a separate conversation, (laughs) but um, we can come back to that. But basically, blue blocking glasses, you can get ones that make you look like you're about to go fly fishing or do metallurgy. Or if you want to fit in with your friends, you can go on Amazon and spend $10 and get ones that look kind of trendy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it all is better than nothing. And you basically just, the use case is different for different people. Some people wear it for the last half an hour before bed, or if they're reading a Kindle, or if they are looking at a computer close to bedtime, I tend to put them on around 8.30 or 9 in the evening and keep them on until bedtime. And I find it helps me fall asleep much more easily. Do you use the amber colored ones? Uh, so I, I do prefer the ones that make you look like a psychopath. Mm -hmm. I think that they're a little bit more effective, but I'll be honest, if I'm going to be around other people, I quickly switch into my normal looking ones. Nice. Yeah. And just full disclosure here, I am one of the blue, blue blocker wearing psychopaths (laughs) who exist in the world. My wife thinks I'm an idiot, but I love it. And there's, you got to get her her own pair. I know she won't take it. And she always wants to watch Netflix prior to bed. And I'm like, no, let me read my novel. I'm not exposing myself to that giant screen that's in front of us so it's a constant battle every night with us the struggle is real (laughs) but i I saw a study this is something that referenced a lot too that just an hour of blue light um, after the sun go down goes down can reduce uh, melatonin production by 20 percent yeah, Which yeah. And melatonin, I think of it as an endangered species of modern life. It is, it's part of the reason like melatonin supplements fly off the shelves at mm-hmm. the drugstore. Although I think that we can have a conversation about how I don't really think the supplemental form is doing quite what the real homegrown version is doing. Talk to me um, about but, that, please, actually. Um, so let's see. Because a I lot, guess, so just sorry to preface that. Yeah. Um, 
I'm a high school teacher and a lot of my students just yesterday I had quite a few of my students talking about their melatonin supplements it's like big in the mm-hmm. high school world right now it's like trickled down to them wow. and just the lack of sleep that's already there and them being on youtube and their phones until 11 um, p.m 12 a.m um it seems like they're reaching constantly for these melatonin gummies so what would you Oof. say to those kids Okay, four bullet points in my mind. Let's see if I can retain all this. So I should have brought a notepad. So basically, bullet point number one, it's it's disturbing to me that um, like developing brains right now are kind of like getting hopped up on caffeine and Adderall during the day and then need a melatonin to go to sleep and yes. TikTok and screens at bedtime. It's really tricky. Childhood is hard enough as it is. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we can come back to that, but that is just a bit disconcerting. Um, so melatonin. It's not a sleep-inducing hormone. It's a hormone that tells your body what time of day it is. And I'm old-fashioned in that I like to tell your body what time of day it is based on what time of day it is. And there are strategies that you can use. And I think that's the missing piece of the puzzle for so many of us is we don't realize it's not so hard to give your brain the real cues. And once you put those into place, you don't need the supplement so much. The reason I think it's not doing the same thing as the real homegrown version, one is just an intuitive sense that the body is a much more complex symphony of hormones than um, anything in pill form. But the other is some data to back that up, which is that we know that when people miss their chance at secreting melatonin in the evening, and that's, for example, nurses um, in the women's health study where they nurses who work the overnight shift, so they're exposed mm-hmm. to light overnight, they have lower melatonin levels, they have higher breast cancer rates, because, which is related to melatonin because melatonin is important for our immune system, which is actually important for fighting cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, and so basically, this is the nurses' health study out of Harvard. And so basically, when you would think then, okay, just supplement with melatonin and you'll correct for that mortality risk, but it doesn't. So there's something, there's always something else going on in the body than just when we isolate it out to one compound. Mm -hmm. And I just think we sometimes try to think we can outthink the body or play God. And I don't think it ever ends well. Yeah. Yeah. As far as brain cues, I've been doing something recently, uh, intentionally, I'm just getting outside in the morning. I have my little morning ritual and routine that I'm all about, but something that I've added recently is when I see that sun peak up over the hill, I go out and let my eyes absorb that light. Like I'm not looking directly at it, but I'm looking through the trees, kind of letting those wavelengths get right into my eyeballs. And I know it's helping me biologically, but also just as a placebo i'm you know telling myself this is providing me with energy it's waking my body up it's providing me with high levels of cortisol in the morning which is when your cortisol should be high and it's kind of setting my circadian rhythm so my energy and my mood and everything is optimal for the morning and for the rest of the day Um, and then going outside at night as well and watching it go down as best as I can watching the sun go down and then also something else is not wearing sunglasses in the morning on my Mm -hmm. drive to work and then walking around campus I've been very intentional about that and I feel like it's helping it could be a little placebo whatever placebo works but it's also helping so um I've found benefit in that yeah, uh, I 100,000% agree with everything you just said. And that's exactly what I do here. And I'm really in the business of spreading the word that this is all realistic. Like, um, it 
sometimes I'll be on a platform like Instagram and people will be like, this is my hour and a half morning routine and I exercise and then I do a fasted workout and then I do a green tea ritual and then I meditate for 10 hours. And I'm like, well, I have a five-year-old and a job and it's not happening. And the, the pile of dishes, it's just no way. And so, um, but this is realistic. All I manage, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. All I manage is I get outside before 9am and I see the sun. And some days that's a minute. And, and I live in a New York City apartment building. So it's actually more effort even. <laughs> like if you live in a house, you just walk out your front door. It's yeah. so simple. I got to ride an elevator and have small talk. <laughs> it's tough. So um, so I think that um, for an introvert at least. And yeah. so basically, yeah, any amount of seeing the sun and yes, like take precautions, like don't necessarily eyes wide open stare at the sun, but do what feels good. Use common sense, but maybe just a little bit of an eye toward the fact that I think we've really gotten sunshine wrong. And we've been really taught to fear it and hide from it and sunblock it away and UV shirt it away. And I think we just need more of it. It's sort of like Mother Nature's espresso shot in the Mm -hmm. morning, Mm -hmm. just like the sunset and darkness in the evening was kind of Mother Nature's melatonin supplement. She didn't she didn't leave us high and dry. She really gave us a system that works. And we've just gotten away from it because we're indoors during the day and then we're staring at screens at night. Yeah. Yeah. I heard uh, Dr. Matthew Walker out of Berkeley who wrote that. I'm sure you're familiar, but for the listeners, he wrote a mm-hmm. phenomenal book called Why We Sleep. And yeah. it's a big deal in the health and wellness world. But he, he just makes a couple points about sleep that I think are, are worth mentioning. One being that as far as like a survival evolutionary perspective, sleep is like legitimately the worst thing that we could possibly have going for us. We're super vulnerable. <laughs> we're not reproducing. We're not eating. We're not, you know, we're expending energy without consuming it any any energy um but so that if if it wasn't important we would have kind of evolved past it and we you know it'd be very minimal it would it wouldn't be a big part of our lives but so the fact that it is still here um says a lot about it and then the other thing he was talking about is kind of what you were mentioning with electricity is that prior to the invention of electricity the average person was sleeping 12 hours a night which is a lot like my kids sleep 12 hours a night right now which is amazing and i'm like oh my gosh am, am i doing them damage by helping them sleep this much but the average was that amongst just adults too which is insane and then obviously the light bulb came around and that lowered to i don't know six or seven hours i'm sure so yeah, that makes me think of a couple of things. I mean, one, I completely, and it's such a revelatory idea that evolution doesn't really mess around or make too many huge mistakes. And the fact that we vulnerably lie unconscious in the dark, <laughs> just, just leopard, <laughs> yeah, you know, leopard catnip, fuel. it's, yeah. yeah, it's like, um, you know, it's for damn good reason. And, yeah. um, and then, um, and then I think that, I think that the research around how much to be used to sleep is so mixed and complex and interesting and endlessly fascinating. Um, I do think that this is just like to throw in a little bit of a functional mental health question here. When you look at ADD and ADHD in kids and I would argue in adults, I, I so often think of it as a sleep issue until proven otherwise. And mm. so when you see hyperactive kids, what is standing in the way of them getting enough sleep? And it's not always, I mean, sometimes it is bad habits. Sometimes it's bad breathing. Sometimes it's, you know, who knows? It can be so many different things. Um, and that hyperactivity is really kind of how they 
stimulate themselves to keep themselves awake um, during the day. And for adults, you see lack of focus and procrastination and forgetfulness and um, all of that scattered thinking, which often correlates to some kind of bad breathing at sleep time, whether it's apnea or mouth breathing. Um, and sometimes it's something else. Sometimes it's poor habits. Usually it's something more physiologic and systemic. Mm, yeah. I'm tempted to go down the ADHD rabbit hole with you, but there's so many other things I want to talk to you about, especially being a <laughs> high school teacher and seeing a lot of these kids, you know, self-identify as having ADHD and using it as an excuse. And I just, there's so much to that conversation. Um, but first, I just want to ask you, are there any other supplements that you think are effective with enhancing sleep quality like magnesium or any herbal supplements or, you know, like any of the Tulsi's or any of that type mm -hmm. of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So the one that I do just wholeheartedly recommend is magnesium glycinate. Glycinate. Um, Notably, not magnesium citrate, which will just kind of give you a loose stool, but magnesium glycinate um, does it, it. I think it's important because it repletes a very common deficiency. Most of us are depleted in magnesium because our soil is depleted, so our food is depleted. And when we're low in magnesium, that's when you see things like insomnia, anxiety, um, you see headaches and migraines, menstrual cramps, muscle tension, even shortened lifespan, cardiovascular implications and digestive issues as well. So I think most people do well with a bit of magnesium glycinate supplementation. Everyone's a little different. Some people do well with like 100 or 200 milligrams. Some people more like 400 to 600. Mm. It's safe even up to about 800. It's kind of self-limiting. If you're getting loose stool, you're taking too much, so ease off. Mm. And um, so I think that one, I have most of my patients on magnesium glycinate to, to good benefit. Um, there's the whole other realm of what do you take for sleep? And I kind of am no fun about that. Like, yes, I entertain the hemp oil, CBD oil. Like some people really get benefit from that. Honestly, some people get benefit from cannabis indica. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like a perfect solution, but I do think it's um, less harmful than the conventional sleep aids like Ambien and the benzodiazepines. So it's sometimes the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. And then um, the the Tulsi's, the valerian roots, the lemon balm, and the mm -hmm. you know all of that passion flower. It's all lovely. Um, I find that here's like a subtle point. If you know you just want to take something as a ritual in the evening, makes you feel a little calm. It's a great option. They tend to be safe. They tend to be a little bit effective. I have a lot of patients who are doing more like trying to wean off of sleep aids. And I find that they get frustrated or defeated because like passion flower and valerian root are just not clonopin and they never will be. <laughs> and so they, they're just like, this doesn't work. And it's like, well, you have to sort of recalibrate your expectation yeah. of working. Yeah. So I think that they're a subtle effect and that can be a nice ritual, especially if you kind of amplify it for yourself by telling yourself, I'm doing my evening ritual. This calms my body, mm -hmm. but you just have to manage your expectations. Yeah. What would you say to people taking things like trazodone and Ambien and stuff like that? Just generally, what would you say to them? I don't want to leave anybody feeling really discouraged. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, that said, here's the discouraging message, I guess, <laughs> is um, I'm concerned by, and again, it is an association, not causality, but I am concerned by the association with increased all-cause mortality with sedatives and hypnotics. And so basically... Um, to me, that makes it's a biologically plausible 
connection. It They all impact the quality of your sleep. For many of them, you're kind of either unconscious or at least not remembering what happened overnight. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are just sort of amnestic, but a lot of them are not giving you something that truly simulates healthy sleep architecture, where your brain is going through the different cycles and getting truly restorative sleep. And as we've discussed, truly restorative sleep is like the most important health intervention any of us can do. So um, anything that's going to sort of, in a prolonged way, take you out of that is mm -hmm. not going to help you with your long-term health longevity. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so let's switch gears now um, and transition over to anxiety and depression, if you don't mind, both hot mm -hmm. topics. Uh, and the first thing I'd love to hear you respond to is this common idea that depression is mostly caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. What are your thoughts around that? It was, it, it is what we've all been indoctrinated with and it's a well-meaning sort of deductive reasoning idea that we've arrived at um, that is useful, but not the whole story. So basically there, you know, we've been taught depression is a genetic chemical imbalance. It's therefore, it's your serotonin, it's your destiny, take these pills and mm -hmm. correct the serotonin, fill up your empty serotonin gas tank and you'll feel okay. And it would take us too long to sort of break that down in all the ways that it breaks down. But basically the medications would be more effective if that were truly the case um, as it is. Mm -hmm. They tend to not separate from placebo from mild to moderate depression. Then at more serious levels of depression, there is a change, which is interesting. Um, and then it also to me is just not, well, it's not a message that recognizes that depression tracks with different epidemiological trends. Um, so something mm. purely genetic wouldn't change with the environment and, you know, in rapidly in the last few generations, mm -hmm. but which is not just a matter of screening. Um, but then also to me, it's just not a hopeful message. And I'm so, so um, like annoyingly optimistic and hopeful. And I just believe that we can get into balance. I, I, I tend to just believe in the design of the human body for the most part, like my knees are bad and menopause is no fun. Like mm -hmm. we, we're not perfectly designed, but I think that we are designed to be okay when our fundamental human needs are met. So I think that the genetic basis is there. It's a vulnerability, it's real, but it doesn't trap you into the certainty of depression. And that way, so many people feel trapped. They think, my mom was depressed, my grandma had bipolar, therefore, I will be depressed. Um, I think that I'm, I think we're just, we're due for a more hopeful message, which is that yes, you have this genetic predisposition. And there's a lot that you can control. And it's not so um, lofty or inaccessible. It comes down to are you generally eating nutrient dense food? Are you mm. generally avoiding inflammatory food? How's your gut? Are you pooping every day? Have you taken a lot of antibiotics and you need a little TLC around your gut? Um, mm -hmm. Are you do you have community? Do you connect to meaning and purpose in your life? Are you connected to nature? Are you getting enough sunshine? It's these things. A lot of them are free. Mm -hmm. um, they're just not the structure of our modern life. And so all of this is to say, I just feel like the genetic chemical imbalance idea is not the whole story. And it's kind of the least helpful story that we've got going on right now. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also fair to say that perhaps it might be useful as a last resort and that most people just don't want to do the work. They just want the pill that's going to help them immediately. 
They don't want to start eating real whole foods. They don't want to start exercising more. They're terrified to be vulnerable and honest and loving with the people around them and to reach out and make new friends. They're, you know, not getting outside. Um, they're not sleeping well, obviously. And it's just, it's much easier to, uh, take the pill. And I was, I fell victim to this with, on my first therapy session, I was, uh, prescribed an SSRI and just the, the very first session that I had with this guy and God bless this dude. He's, you know, doing what he thinks is best, but it's like, man, he didn't ask me about, you know, uh, the way I'm living or, you know, what I'm eating or my relationship, uh, status with my wife or my family or my friends or anything like that. And it was like, man, just to see it firsthand and then to be prescribed this bottle, which I ended up taking, like I fell victim to it and started, you know, I was just kind of a zombie and numbed out and, uh, started having other symptoms and low libido and stuff like that. And it was terrible. And I'm like, goodness gracious. So just thinking how prevalent and ubiquitous these things are, um, is a little bit scary to me. And I think it's just, it just points to the fact that, you know, as a, as a society and a culture, we're just not, we're just lazy. We're not wanting to do the work, the true work that, you know, we, I think we all intuitively know can bring healing. Like let's check all of those 20 boxes first before we, uh, revert to something out of an orange bottle. I want to come to the defense of certain individuals. Mm, <laughs> so I think that, do. um, so I think I'm, I'm inclined to defend the individual who takes the pill instead of doing the work. And even the psychiatrist who prescribes the pill, which you, you came to their defense as well. I think that it's, I blame the culture more, our mm. society. And, and some of the factors are a little nefarious, like what our government subsidizes and what the pharmaceutical companies are marketing to us. But some of it's not so nefarious. We just have arrived at a place where, um, we have all been so culturally conditioned to think um like poor health is that a pill for an ill basically that if something is out of balance what you got to do is go to a doctor and get the medicine that fixes it and so you know the idea of doing the work um it it, it's for some people it feels inaccessible or out of reach or we just are already so strapped with um childcare and commuting and jobs and bills and they're just you know we're like what you want me to do one more thing (laughs) but i think that it's also like we just do not have the cultural messaging around here are three easy actionable changes you can make today that might make you less likely to be depressed we Mm -hmm. just don't have the messaging so i don't really put it on the individuals i think we need a whole sea change around the public conversation around mental health agreed and i think that's happening at some level and i think at least uh, from what I see, the younger generations and especially my generation, your generation are are starting to become more privy to that. And via these long form podcasts and online content and stuff, we're starting to realize that, you know, the way that perhaps our parents are living or have been treated is not how we want to go. We don't want to be on 10, 11, 12 medications and, you know, just be involved with this symptom suppression type of medicine. Um, So there's hope in that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We're in a moment of growth and change. Yeah. Um, you, you feel it culturally, it's happening. This is not a stagnant era. And yeah. so um, it's it's exactly the moment that the conversation is changing. I yeah. feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't offer a, a couple actionable steps right there. Please, just to be like, please do. Like, well, what are those three things? Yeah. Um, I think maybe I won't keep it to three, maybe four. But um, I think that getting the phone out of the bedroom is one of the most impactful, easy changes you can make. Um, we can go into the why, but you can also just give it a try. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> um, I think that prioritizing sleep, but in the way of like being strategic about light exposure in the evening, maybe wearing psychopathic blue blocker glasses. <laughs> um, 
somehow prioritizing movement, but it doesn't have to be oh daunting you know it's like it doesn't have to be all or nothing and i'm like okay yeah mm -hmm. i'm gonna sign up for a package with a personal trainer and I, today yeah. starts a new leaf i think it's more like move for five minutes for free in yes. your living room and that is infinitely better than doing nothing mm -hmm. um and then community is such a focus basically if you're not feeling held in community not feeling like you can show up as your whole authentic self and people see you good bad ugly vulnerabilities flaws and might be irritated by you around some things, but they mm -hmm. still accept you. You still belong and you're still loved. Like we just have such a fundamental need for that to mm -hmm. feel well. And if you don't have that, I don't even think any amount of Zoloft really gets you there. Yeah. Um, we, we need that. It's not negotiable and it's not easy to come by. We have a lot of um, structural factors that are barring us from having real community in our day-to-day -day lives. So it's worth fighting for and making big sweeping changes to the structure of your life to build it back in. Yes, absolutely. Thank you that for saying that. That one's not so easy. Yeah, yeah, but so important, probably the most important. Um, yeah. As, as I was telling you, I was talking to James Maskell and he said that 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 loneliness and relationship quality is the uh, most contributing factor to all-cause mortality above, uh, you know, smoking, alcohol consumption, poor diet, uh, poor environment, you know, toxins, all those different things, which is fascinating and very telling. Yeah, yeah. So how about anxiety? Do you approach anxiety differently than depression? A little bit. Um with anxiety, I do focus maybe even a little more so than with depression on blood sugar. Mm. And it's such a nice, easy um, change to make. Basically, so much of anxiety is just our body's stress response that happens as a reaction to a blood sugar crash. And this is happening mm. a lot in modern life because our diet is just built on a foundation of refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are actually milkshakes and rosé all day and so basically we're on this blood sugar roller coaster and every time it crashes our body the design is that it um, we secrete cortisol and adrenaline and that signals our liver to break down our glycogen or starch storage and it's a whole nice design yeah. but it leaves us in a five alarm fire stress response so a lot of us are just anxious because of our blood sugar swings and if you have anxiety the definitive solution is to transition to a blood sugar stabilizing diet real yeah. food avoid avoiding fake food, avoiding sugar, refined carbohydrates, et cetera. But there's even a hack that works pretty well, which is to use something like almond butter or coconut oil and just take a spoonful when you need to give your body a safety net of stable blood sugar. Some of my patients do that upon waking, before bed, and maybe around two or three in the afternoon. Other hmm. patients have done it like at four hour intervals throughout the day, and it's been the most fundamental intervention in their whole treatment really um, so, so just taking yeah. a giant spoonful of a nut butter every four hours or so yeah, i wouldn't say it has to be giant it can yeah. be any regular <laughs> spoon just dip it in the jar and eat what feels good to you um and yeah that that alone just gives you a safety net of blood sugar and then you're not crashing and less anxious fascinating any other tips or tricks in regards to anxiety Oh, anxiety. <laughs> so I just wrote a book on it. So I have like 480 <laughs> yeah. pages of tips and tricks. <laughs> so let's see if I can simplify yeah. that slightly. Um, I guess I think that there's like 
the um, material and then the psychospiritual with anxiety. And mm-hmm. I think that the material is you know, blood sugar matters, magnesium helps, caffeine is something to look at, nutrition, gut health, um, sleep, of course, mm-hmm. exercise. That's all worth looking at. Um, and then the psychospiritual, which I think, I mean, anxious folks are basically like such prophets in many ways. And they're here to say a couple of things. One is something's not right in the world. I can feel it. And they're absolutely right. So that is really a call to action like hear that honor it listen for what message it's communicating and take steps accordingly and some of that anxiety then kind of transmutes into more of a feeling of purpose than just unease Mm -hmm. and some of it is just begging the bigger questions about life like can we trust this can we surrender to this or do we need to white knuckle the whole process because Mm. mortality is just so vulnerable and like that the fear of of losing the ones we love the fear of losing our ride on this earth and i think that that's kind of what anxiety boils down to and it's Mm -hmm. not wrong but i think for me at least and i can't um put you know i can't say that this is right or true for everyone but for me the more i grapple with the bigger questions and feel some connection to greater order to this universe Mm -hmm. feel connection to um the divine i feel less anxious i feel more surrendered and trusting which is not to say the world is perfect and i've resigned to leaving it as it is it's a different concept you still show up and fight to make things better but i feel a little bit less um panicked about loss and about it all ending i think that i trust it totally yeah that's really good because most days not every day yeah (laughs) Yeah. because at the end of the day i mean anxiety is really for me, I will speak for myself is it just boils down to fearful narratives and fearful thoughts. Mm -hmm. And for me in my faith, you know, that, that is a refuge for me in abiding in something greater than me. Um, and the love of the universe and the love of another, and just that it ends well for me in regards to what I think. So being able to separate out of myself and disconnect from those harmful narratives in my mind, rise above them and then redirect and input narratives that are more um, rooted in truth and goodness and hope and joy, you know, and love and patience and all these things is is a very, very powerful tool, but is easier said than done. And then, you know, then comes in meditation and mindfulness and, you know, strengthening your muscle to separate from your thoughts and narratives and all that stuff. So that's all good stuff. And, you know, you just made me realize something, which is that, yes, I 100% agree. Anxiety is in a dynamic with this fundamental human vulnerability, which is fear. And it's, I think that in the same way that like the processed food industry is like, you know what, humans are hungry, let's capitalize on this and sell them addictive food. Mm. I think that um, a lot of different forms of people selling us something have figured out that fear really is an effective strategy. And if they can instill fear, uncertainty, doubt in us, we'll buy what they're selling. Mm. Um, We'll rubberneck and stay glued to their news network or to their Instagram page. We'll click and, you know, this is the attention economy. So if they can hold our attention, they're getting more clicks and more engagement and ad revenue and they win. And so I think fear is on one part a very fundamental truth of what it means to vulnerably exist. Mm -hmm. And it's also a marketing strategy. So we're getting a little excess dose of it these days just because people are trying to sell us something. That's a great point. Great point. Any supplements or herbs or anything like that uh, related to anxiety and depression that you are fond of? Um, You'll detect a theme, which is that I'm kind of like not super, super 
promoting supplements. Mm -hmm. I like to get our nutrition from food, nutrient dense food. But once in a while, I think it can be useful. I think turmeric has a place as a really nice um, kind of cantilever when we're inappropriately inflamed. Um, Mm -hmm. And so people with autoimmune disease, when there is an inflammatory component to depression or anxiety, I find that turmeric or curcumin can be helpful. Mm. Um, Sometimes a B vitamin supplement, like a methylated B vitamin supplement can be useful. Um, I'm not putting too many people on probiotics these days. I think there's a lot of issues around something called SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where we're getting really too much of the beneficial bacteria. Mm. So um, more often than not, I just trust food. So eating fermented foods like sauerkraut, kimchi can be a a gentler way of populating your your gut with Mm. beneficial bacteria. Um, and then yeah, prebiotics, I mean, are you a fan of prebiotics, feeding those good I think, bacteria? Which, I think you eat them, yeah. You yeah. eat starchy tubers, eat plantains, um, and I think that's the right way to set yourself up for successful colonization. So mm-hmm. I kind of try to pair that, like a one-two punch of sauerkraut and potatoes is a nice combo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that there is a place for things like omega-3s. Um, I like cod liver oil personally. I mean, I don't like it. It's not delicious, <laughs> but I like it as a, a nice whole food way of getting our omega-3 fatty acids and it comes with a little bit of vitamins a d e and k which is great yeah awesome well we are almost out of time ellen and this has been awesome i have a few more questions for you uh first one is if you could recommend a couple books from any genre for me and the listeners to check out what would they be and why and this could be one two three whatever just comes to mind Ah, uh, there's just so I many. Know, you're an <laughs> English, English major, so I'm sure you can go <laughs> off right now. Well, I think that these days what I'm really feeling is um, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. Um, I think that Brene Brown is must-see TV for everybody. Um, I think that I've gotten a lot out of, this one's cliche, but Eckhart Tolle with Mm -hmm. um, The Power of Now and uh, Michael Singer's uh, Untethered Soul and... Yeah, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on and on. So we'll start with that. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, last question, what does a life enchanted mean to you? Uh, I I guess, let me me answer it on two levels. I think that in the material sense, it's really just slowing down and getting to enjoy the people in your life. Mm. Um, And I think on a little bit more of a psycho-spiritual sense, Okay, so we've quoted Beck, but if I'm really being myself here, my one true love in the world is Beyonce, and um, <laughs> she, there's some video of her like circulating on Instagram where she's talking about how she feels that um, that God is real and that she feels God inside of her. It's inside of all of us, mm-hmm. and she's like, I know it's real. I feel it. And she's crying as she's saying this. And I cry when I watch her say this because that's kind of a place I've come to relatively recently in my life is feeling the divine from within, seeing it within everybody around me. And to me, that has made life really shiny. And Mm. I just feel completely imbued with this incredible light and energy. And it informs everything I do and every connection I make with people in my life. And it Mm. gives my work meaning and purpose and it gives me motivation and energy and gives me a little bit of comfort in the tougher moments. And so I think that's really my truth these days is just to feel that vibration from within and to trust it. Yes. I love that. I once heard a rabbi explain it as there's a beautiful symphony constantly playing 
within you, within everyone, within creation, within nature, all around you. But most of us can't hear the music. And if we could just stop mm-hmm. and listen to the music and just that, I mean, music is such a powerful thing in and of itself, but being able to focus on the music and let that, that melody just saturate your life, I think is a powerful thing. So thank you for saying that. Mm. Oh, I love that. I have goosebumps and you and I will both close this and then go and just listen to the music <laughs> yes, for the rest exactly. of the day. Exactly. Ellen, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Nick, thank you so, so much. All right, guys. Later. A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the music heard throughout this episode. Also, a big shout out to Capital Floats, aka my favorite sensory deprivation and float tank facility in Northern California. I'm a frequent user there, and the experience is always transformative to say the least. If you're interested in floating and live in Northern Cal, make sure you use promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout on their website. You'll save a whopping 40% off your first float and you will not find that deal anywhere else. Also, in regards to some of the content shared in these episodes, make sure you always consult your doctor before making any sudden diet or lifestyle changes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can find me on Instagram at nick.carlisle or send me an email nick at mylifeenchanted.com. 